Osiris. Hey folks, I am David Goldstein. I am Brian Brinkman. You are tuned into a bonus episode of Beyond the Pond. As you know by now, this is the podcast in which, generally speaking, Brian and myself utilize the music of Fish as a springboard to get the listener to listen to other bands. These are usually not jam bands because, as you know, we love Fish. We are fish fans. Sometimes the problem with fish fans is they get myopic. They only listen to fish. They forget that other bands exist. And we're laughing at you. And the band is laughing at you. And you just can't let that happen to yourself, man. You can't let it happen. I mean, who influences fish? Fish? Well, sometimes. But the band listens to a lot of other music as well. And we expect you guys to do the same. And tonight's episode is solely focused on that. Not doing any fish. This is a bonus episode where we are talking about our favorite albums, our top 10 albums of 2012. Uh, If you've listened to the other two bonus episodes that preceded this, you know how this goes. We just kind of rifle through a year this decade, go through our favorite albums of the year, talk a bit about it, dive deep, give you some... uh, fish easter eggs from the year if you're listening uh if you're listening closely and then uh we'll let you on your way it's a pretty smooth pretty easy pretty fun episode isn't it yeah indeed it's uh fun for us to record hopefully equally fun for the listener absolutely so let's jump right into it uh so as we begin all these episodes dave we are now two years into the decade it was a presidential election it was the first year that we noticed Something weird was happening with the San Francisco Giants. It was also the first year that LeBron James won a championship. First year or the second year? I thought the Giants won in 2010, 2012, and 2014. They did. This was the year we noticed something weird because they were winning even years. It's okay. I made that more complicated than it needs to be. Uh, (laughs) Who were you, though, as a listener at this point in time? 2012. I think of 2012 as mostly that's the year that I kind of got back into fish. Not okay. that I've ever been out of fish, but a combination of them finally starting to play some consistently hot shows, plus me discovering fish Twitter and kind of using the internet to forward my interest in the band. This was, I think, the first time in a while I had gone to um, multiple summer shows. Okay. What else in 2012? I wore a Hartford Whalers hat a whole lot in 2012. (laughs) And that's about all I remember. Like I said, I wouldn't have a child until October 2014. So I'll have a bit more to talk about in 2013 about what I was doing. But 2012, I don't remember that much of it except my fish experiences the fact that once again the Mets were not very competitive. 
This was the year, though, that you got uh, your first no-hitter as a Met. Oh, goodness. Yes, that's correct. That was the... I can tell you, that's right. That was the Johan Santana no-no yes. against the St. Louis Cardinals. 8 nothing, 134 pitches, I think. He was never the same after that. Worth it. Totally worth it. Um... Yeah, this is our these first four episodes of of the bonus 2010s episode, if you or, or series, if you will, are all pre Dad Rock, and then it gets, um, you know, just really emotional in middle age after that. But uh, yes, yeah, 2012, I lived in Portland still. I was fully into cooking in a high end restaurant, but also starting to wonder if I could actually do this for the long run. Um, I got married. I sold everything that I owned, raised like $20,000. And my wife and I spent four months road tripping across America, three separate times. I saw, uh, I think nine fish shows and probably the best fish show I've ever seen. And the fuck your face show. And um, this was probably out of all the years this decade, this is probably the one year where it was harder for me to come up with a top 10 because I was listening to a lot of fish. I was on the road. It was before I used streaming services. So I had to have everything on my computer and or phone. I couldn't just pull music up. So I really relied on a lot of heavy hitters. And these records that came up and stuck with me are the records that um, – uh, I just loved throughout the entire year. So let's jump into it here. What is your number 10 album of 2012? My number 10 album is from Mark Lanigan. Album is Blues Funeral. Mark Lanigan, of course, being the eternally leather gravelly voice, manly man from the Seattle scene who was in Screaming Trees. They had that one hit on the single soundtrack with the song Nearly Lost You. And he's had a pretty reasonably good solo career since then. He's also kind of been a part-time member of Queens of the Stone Age. He's also sung with um, with Isabel Campbell, who was in Bell and Sebastian. He's sung with PJ Harvey. He's kind of, whenever you need someone with some world-weary, instant world-weary gravitas on your record, you can hire Mark Lanigan and he'll come in in leather, staring at the ground and growl. (laughs) And then you'll have some instant hard-earned credibility on your album. But yeah, Blues Funeral is a very good record. It's probably my favorite solo album of his. has a very good variety of styles, but really the reason that you want to listen to a Mark Lanigan album is for his voice so you can feel hard and stare out the window and see clouds and thunderstorms and it accomplishes all of that and my favorite track in that album is actually a song called ode to sad disco which i think it's basically a song about mark lanigan going to a disco on what sounds like ecstasy and just being surprised about what this man in his mid-40s is seeing and it's to a backing track that sounds like the song Change of Love by the band Erasure. Hmm. So, good album. Still listen to it on a fairly regular basis, actually. 
that is one based on your descriptions I need to have in my uh, rotation here tomorrow. That sounds absolutely fascinating. Yes. Um, my number 10 is... I don't think this is the debut from this band. I could be wrong. It's a very early record for the band Dive, spelled D-I-I-V. The album is Ocean. This is a band that's going to crop up or pop up uh, in a couple episodes again here as well. I just love the guitar melodic interplay of what these guys do. Um, I believe the lead guitarist, singer-songwriter's name is Zachary Allen Cohn or something like that. I think Zachary Cole. Zachary Cole. Zachary Cole. Yeah. Um, who has had some, you know, unfortunately really well-publicized battles with addiction and his records tend to kind of in a spiritualized manner sound a little bit heroiny uh but it's kind of like drone and reverb and um kind of glossy sound that they have to them but very very shimmery like very shimmery melodies um has always really appealed to me so i absolutely love this record i think i this was one of those records I was kind of scouring Pitchfork in spring of 2012 for new music. And I just happened, it's kind of like buying um, a six pack of beer that you buy just based off of the label looks nice. I downloaded this just because I liked the album cover and was like pleasantly surprised when it ended up being fantastic. Um, so yeah, this was uh, definitely a favorite of mine through that year and kind of bled into a lot of the music that I like to listen to still to this point. If I'm not mistaken, I think Zachary Cole was one of the people interviewed in that recent he was. Uh, GQ article with Trey yeah. about yeah, addiction he, um, recovery. He's quite a bit younger, and I think he's in his either late 20s or early 30s at this point in time. And um, he definitely had, I think, the least to say about it, um, which, you know, everyone about that experience. Um, right. You know, the fascinating thing about that piece was you really saw you really heard the personalities come out and it, it sounds like he went through some pretty hard stuff it's it's uh hoping that he's he's healthy and we can hear more dive music in the future absolutely well certainly i mean if he's contributing that article and speaking out you would hope that it's soon followed by new music i know uh totally. their last record was extremely good as well yes yes so I love that. my number nine is by rush one of my favorite bands of all time, one of the greatest classic rock bands of all time. So the album, which I believe ended up being their swan song, Clockwork Angels, which I think we talked about briefly as well in the Stephen Hyden episode where we talked about our favorite fish sets, went on a bit of a rush digression towards the end. But I would say... If you're a Rush newbie, it's not the greatest introduction to the band, but if you are a fan who's followed them for as long as I have and very familiar with their discography, Clockwork Angels is a a very strong, I want to say, 19th studio album, and it ended up being a good swan song for them, kind of encapsulates all that they do well. They had a very interesting tour for it, where for two sets, the second set of which they essentially played the album front to back with string accompaniment. It was very cool. And it was just um, a good accomplishment for that band and a fitting cap to their career, certain after everybody. 
And if you want to ask me about the best way to get into Rush, I can certainly tell you, but different podcast for a different day. <laughs> we might have to do that at some point. Um, so my number nine is a band that is in their second of, I believe, three appearances in my countdown throughout the decade. Uh, it's Beach House and it's Bloom in the trusty nine or ten spot for me at the end of the year. Um, <laughs> this is probably my least favorite of their albums that came out. Well, no, I would say actually Depression Cherry, but of, of the albums that appear on my list, this is probably my least favorite. Um, but it, you know... It takes basically what the band did so well on Team Team Dream and just kind of adds to it. There's not really a break here, which is probably why I don't listen to it as much as I listen to the other two on my list. Um, but it definitely it's 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 beautiful. It's very melodic. Uh, Victoria Legrand sounds great in it. Alex Scali's guitar work is uh, a little bit sharper and a little bit more full sounding than it was on Teen Dream. Uh, I don't think it has the songs that you get on Teen Dream that are as memorable, but it still flows together as a really good album. Um, I definitely enjoyed this throughout that year. I was pleasantly surprised with what the band was doing immediately after a huge breakout and um, definitely will still throw it on every so often here and there and um, you know, the fact that they put out a record that was uh, this good was you know, part of the reason why I stuck with them throughout the decade and was definitely rewarded last year with seven. I'm not sure I've ever heard Bloom. I'm sorry. I mean, if you love <laughs> Teen Dream, you don't necessarily need to hear this. If you or if you really like Teen Dream, um, it's really like an up. It, it, it's not even an upgrade. It's just a uh, a furthering of the sound without really breaking from it. They weren't really experimenting, okay. um, but it's definitely worth a spin. It's uh, it's a really nice springtime record. Okay, so for my number eight is the Corin Tucker Band album is Kill My Blues. Corin Tucker being the Banshee Howl vocalist component and guitarist for Slater Kinney, one of my favorite bands ever. Of course, Slater Kinney being Corin Tucker, Carrie Brownstein, and Janet Weiss. So when this album came out, Slater Kinney was on extended hiatus. You know, the year before, Carrie Brownstein and Janet Weiss had put out the album Wild Flag with Mary Timoney. So this is the second album from the Corin Tucker Band. And it certainly um, kind of sounds like more simplistic Slater Kinney, kind of more of a punked up Slater Kinney. The drummer that they have here, um, her drummer, oh right, on drums is Sarah Lund from Unwound, who's sort of almost like the off-brand Janet Weiss. And that's not a slight in any way. She is a fantastic drummer. And yeah, this, to me, even more so than Wild Flag, this album was kind of a decent holdover substitute for Slater Kinney until they came out with The Real Thing back in 2015 with uh, their comeback album, No Cities to Love. What was interesting is um, I actually saw the Corin Tucker Band at the Mercury Lounge here in the East Village in New York City. It was an early show. I think that they went on at 8 o'clock and it was on a Thursday. And I thought, this is great. There'll be plenty of people my age want to see one-third of Slater Kinney rocking the fuck out in a small venue at 8 o'clock. And I think the Mercury Lounge holds 300. 
there was maybe 75 people there. I couldn't believe it. Like, what? Wow. Nobody in the city wants to hear, like, Corn Tucker wail and rock out at 8 o'clock on a Thursday. It was a little bit strange. They were, she was even selling merch, which, you know, awesome, good for her. But, so, yeah, that album, it didn't get the best Pitchfork review. I think Jessica Hopper wrote it, and I think she was unduly cruel to it. It's better than a 6.5. But that record is ripe for a rediscovery. So my number eight is a band that I discovered on who probably one of my five favorite nights of 2012. Um, I was working in Northern California for a spell. That's all I'll say in October of 2012 and um, finished up work. My wife all of our friends drove to Fort Bragg, which is home of um, North Coast Brewing, uh, which is a really great brewery out of uh, California. Brother Thelonious. Brother Thelonious is their big beer out of there. And we uh, rented a couple rooms at the Casper Inn, which is just down the road from Fort Bragg. It's a Victorian mansion that sits right on the edge of the Pacific Ocean. It has a bar, restaurant, venue downstairs and about three or four hotel rooms upstairs that probably should only sleep like three people, but we had eight in a room. Um, We ate some food, we drank some beer, we had some fun, and this band Monophonics came out on stage and they vary between a six and eight piece funk band. They have this amazing lead singer, songwriter, Kelly Finnegan, who also is an organist, and he uh, plays with, like, the energy of Van Morrison from Caravan at the Last Waltz times, like, ten and is drenched in sweat the entire performance, and they're New Orleans-style funk, and it was one of the most fun concerts I've ever been to. There were probably 50 people in this bar. I bought their record, In Your Brain. It's been one of my favorite records to listen to over the last seven years now, and uh, I've seen them live a bunch of times since then. They're one of the best live shows that you can see around. There's jamming. They're really tight, super great musicians. They record out in New Orleans a bunch all from San Francisco. We ended up hanging out with them until like sunrise that night. So that night, got the record. My wife and I had two more months on the road and we probably listened to that record two dozen times while we were driving throughout uh, America. Just so much fun, such warm, just happy, but like down and dirty from time to time, funk music, really great stuff. Um, Absolutely love that record. You told me about this band. I don't know if I've listened to this album. I, I must. I have to I do it. I think you must. I think we featured them. Yeah, I think the problem is three. I get them confused with Monotonics, which are this really obnoxious Israeli band. <laughs> this is not that. <laughs> no? Okay. <laughs> but, yeah. No. Uh, yeah, I mean, they're, they've never... Like, I saw them out here in Denver, and they played at Cervantes, which is like the jam band. Uh, it's a place where jam bands go to basically die. Like, they just... If you're a jam band and you come through Denver, like you play there and that's kind of the cap. 
and it was definitely packed when I saw them last year. Um, they've just never really broken into the larger festival scene, and um, they play a lot in Greece, and they've done like six tours of Greece where they'll spend like a month touring around like how Fish did and used to do in Colorado. Um, but aside from that, uh, they're kind of word of mouth. They start doing Prince and Tom Petty tribute nights, and they'll break into the festival scene. Yeah, that's when you know that they're ready to go. Yeah, that's what that's <laughs> what they got to do. Purple tributes Prince. <laughs> so, what do you got for seven? <laughs> seven. I had LP, uh, Cancer for Cure. Of course, LP being Jamie Moline, El Producto, founder of Definitive Jukes Records, one of the founding members of Company Flow and a fantastic solo artist in his own right. And this album, Cancer for Cure, I have not listened to it in a while, but it seriously knocks. And he will actually, we'll talk more about LP when we get to my number five album. But I think that this is his last solo record that he put out, and there's a reason that he hasn't put out a solo record since 2012. We'll get to that in a little bit. So... My number seven is Grizzly Bears Shields, which was their follow-up to 2009's Vecatomist, which was my favorite record of that year. Um, this is an interesting record for me because it landed here at my number seven. It was in my top ten. Um, kind of similar to the Beach House album in the sense that um, I did not love this like I loved the previous record, but I liked it enough to keep listening to it. Um, it's fallen a little bit out of my rotation. I actually listened to it a little bit more in 2017 after um, the record came out that year that I'm blanking on the title from, Painted Ruins, that's it. Um, because I kind of wanted to trace the steps between those five years and I found myself liking this album a lot more in hindsight. But uh, it's a good record. It it kind of builds on what they did in uh, Vecatomist and how they kind of grew between Yellow House and Vecatomist um, while also tightening things up. Clearly, there's a little bit of a bigger budget going on here and um, higher expectations. And um, I definitely still will throw this on every so often. I think it's a really fascinating album to get lost in. Um, but similar you know to what i'm saying here with the beach house record bloom it kind of has gotten lost based on their their work that's um uh bookended this i love that mist i could not get in the shields at all i tried really <laughs> yeah i mean it's not i don't think it's as good i think that's just really like as simple as it is the first song is very good after that yeah. I can't remember anything except that I tried really hard and after a while I just said, all right, it's not happening. Yeah, you know, it's, I mean, it is to their credit. Uh, there's another mid-aughts vocally, you know, disjointed band that I think we both liked that hasn't produced anything of note really in the 2012 or the 2010s and that's um, Animal Collective. Hmm. Uh, I kind of... I always see Vecatomist and Meriwether Post Pavilion in the same light, and they both played a very similar role for me during that year. Um, to Grizzly Bear's credit, they still show up on my list. <laughs> Painted Ruins is good, though. I did enjoy that. Like Painted Ruins, Ruins is great. That was a fantastic, uh, fantastic little comeback. Yeah. So I've got for my number six, Swans, The Seer. 
I don't think I've listened to this album since 2013. I think I saw in 2013, I saw Swans live three or four times that year when they were touring behind this album. And while The Seer is a very good album studio record in its own right, it really is kind of just a corollary to what Swan's live show was in 2013. And I think up until, I want to say the beginning of 2018, when Michael Jira dissolved that version of Swan's. Because live, they're just extremely loud, pounding everything in unison, like chanting awesome noise and that's sort of what the seer the album is you know the seer the title track i think it's about 35 minutes long so almost i put this album in my top 10 at the time almost as um a way of putting the live show into my top 10 it's more of an appreciation for the live show with the realization that the album while very good is not something i see myself going back to very often I know right before The Seer came out, I think as a means of financing it, uh, they sold a live record called We Woke From Our Beds With The Sun In Our Heads, which was in between The Seer and the previous album, which was the first album with this lineup of swans. I think it was called My Father Will Build Me A Rope Up To The Sky. So that live album, out of all the swans documents in the era, I probably listened to that the most. Just turn up loudly. Yeah, this was a very good era of the band Swans. I mean, I know certainly it's difficult to look past some of the accusations that have uh, came upon Michael Jira in the past few years as he was sort of winding down this incarnation of Swans. But as kind of just a snapshot of um, where my head was and that live show was in 2013, it certainly makes sense to me that this album would be there. Yeah, this... Um just missed my top 10 in 2012 um probably because in the last four months of the year i could really only listen to it by myself I, my wife would not have tolerated this in the car for long stretches um, no underst- not a car record understandably yeah unless you're in traffic <laughs> and want to destroy the other cars in front of you right this um so i remember when i was in korea in 2009 seeing uh there was a great documentary on pitchfork.com i i since i can't find it on the internet too bad it's called uh portland does noise and it was all about the noise underground scene in portland and i remember when i moved to portland that was something i was really interested in was this concept of noise music and somewhere around there i mean i was very much of a latecomer to the band swans but i remember there was also a mini documentary of the making of the seer and um I was like 35, 40 minutes, something like that. But I just found it really fascinating, the process that they went through to make their music, what their intentions were. And I remember this album came out. We got a fantastic review and the cover is incredibly creepy. And I was just fascinated by it. And I threw it on and it was for there's like a brief period of about like 25, 26 months of my life where like this was the kind of music that I just really wanted to hear. And this record was huge for me in that standpoint yeah it's one of those albums that's more impressive right than than listenable Mm -hmm. you know like you can uh, you can appreciate it and understand that it's a hell of a document and that a ton of work went into it and quite unique but in terms of something you actually find yourself listening to on a day-to-day basis not so much 
Right. Yeah, it's not um, it's not music you kind of walk to work with. But um, it was very cool to hear it at Pitchfork. It was yeah. They played Pitchfork in 2013, even when it had to be probably 90 degrees outside and humid. But like the lap steel guy was still wearing like a full three piece suit. They were all dressed in black <laughs> and pants. And I remember you could hear them across the other side of the field. So I was eating a Chicago like chubby wiener just dragged through the garden while listening to swans and thinking this is probably isn't what these guys had in mind was to have people eating like fully dressed Chicago dogs in the field listening to them play. <laughs> but more power to them. Yeah, yeah, you gotta you gotta get that festival dough. Um so my number six is a record that um so this is a unique record for me this year. I remember hearing a, a lot about this album and I never put it on for whatever reason, kind of probably because of what I was saying earlier. I didn't have streaming services at the time, so I had to download everything and I was camping a lot and on the road, blah, blah, blah. Um, this is Japan Droids Celebration Rock. Um, so fast forward to the end of the year, my wife, my brother and I all meet in New York City for the four fish shows to close out the year at Madison Square Garden. And we're getting ready for night one and we're having some drinks and hanging out at the apartment that we were staying at. And my brother asked if I heard this record. I said, not yet. No, I've heard a lot about it though. And he puts it on and it was like <laughs> someone threw like a young Springsteen, like 80s um, uh, Heartland rock and punk music all in in like into my veins at the same time and i was just like this kicks so much ass and we listened to it had some laughs you know whatnot got in the train went up to msg saw a really cool second set that night great great tweezer um really good twist night one then that was night one yes december 28th we're just in a great mood we went to a bar afterwards worked our way back down to the lower east side got back to the apartment we were staying at and immediately put this back on. And so my like recollection of this album is all centered around the last four days of 2012. And I really enjoyed, really enjoyed parts of that fish run. Some parts were a little bit meh, but they were still figuring things out, but it was a real great celebration for me. It was at the end of the year that I got married. I'd seen you know, the best fish I'd ever seen. My wife and I, uh, had made this huge life decision. We'd sold everything. We'd been on the road for four months. We were getting ready to go back to Korea. 2013, 2014 were huge years for us from a travel standpoint. So this record kind of sums up this like final grasp, final gasps of youth and just like indulgence and celebration just for the hell of it. And I love this record to this day. And uh, Japan Dreads are just a, a, a fantastic, fantastic record. Knights of Wine and Roses is a pretty good way to kick off a record. Really fucking is. My man. God. Yeah. Man, what's the next song? Um, is it Fire's Highway? It's Fire's Highway. I'm going to pull it up right now. Hot some alkaline on Fire's Highway tonight. Gene, now we know. Yeah, that album should be in my top 10. It's not. It's probably would be 11 or 12. But I listen to that record more than some of the albums that are in my top 10. Because Japan Droids are great. That, to me, is probably the best Japan Droids record. Yeah. And it inspired the title of one of our favorite podcasts, Stephen Hyden's Celebration Rock Podcast. Absolutely. And 
There's a really great write-up if you go back and read about, I think Celebration Rock landed on Pitchfork's like, I think it was in their like five or six slot of uh, 2012. And um, I forget who the writer is, but they write about when the band started playing The House That Heaven Built at Pitchfork 2012. And mm. um, the reaction from the crowd and like the way the band fed off of it and just, it felt like a moment. And, you know, we all know kind of where rock has gone in la- larger um uh, cultural awareness over the last seven years it, it felt kind of like a last real peak moment for rock and roll in this sort of way and um, that song is probably it's not my favorite song of 2012 it's like in my top five I have a friend who used to call Japan droids the Google dolls with a fuzz box which is <laughs> eh. <laughs> They are as as sincere as it gets, let's say that. Okay. I will buy that. So, my number five album in 2012 is Killer Mike, R.A.P. Music. I think it stands for Righteous African People's Music, Rap Music. So, that album, of course, Killer Mike being Mike Render, rapper, slash activist, recently has a very funny, very uh, interesting show on Netflix called Trigger Warning, which he kind of uses um, absurd situations to kind of address problems for, uh, I guess, the black community as he sees it. So that album was entirely produced by LP, who was my number seven with the Cancer for Cure record. So 2012 was a really big year for both LP and Killer Mike. I think they both put out what I think is each of their career records. And they liked working with each other so much that they banded together to become Run the Jewels, which the first Run the Jewels album, I want to say, came out in 2013. They have a total of three albums. And Run the Jewels, in addition to just being very good, it's probably they're playing to the largest crowds. It's had the most success of any of their projects and it's just kind of crazy for them to have this level of success with that group as hip-hop artists in their mid to late 40s that hardly ever happens in hip-hop where you have the second act that's wholly more interesting than the first so but before you get to run the jewels both uh cancer for cure and rap music are both fantastic both worth checking out so my number five record is Cloud Nothing's Attack on Memory. This is a fucking awesome rock record. Um, so, whereas Japan Droids, I kind of came to in the last four days of 2012, Cloud Nothing's, I think, was my first favorite record of 2012. And I remember reading... It came out early in 2012. It was like February. Yeah, it was like it was late January that it came out. I remember oh. um, I pulled this up because I remember reading Ian Cohen's review of this and I knew of Cloud Nothings. I knew that they were kind of like a bedroom rock band of um, Dylan Baldy. Yeah. Um, But I didn't really know much more than that. And I read this, I'm going to read this little, uh, um, this little snippet of the, of the review because this is what hooked me. Um, he writes, No future, no past is the first gauntlet Baldy dro- throws down, but it's not the most daunting. At more than nine minutes, Wasted Days is far longer than anything on Cloud Nothing's self-titled album. As a radio edit, it could be something like Cloud Nothing's answer to Foo Fighters Everlong. 
a fanged beauty of barbed chords, torrential drum rolls, and impassioned emotion. But as it rolls on, Wasted Days becomes simultaneously forbidden, disorienting, and psychedelic, something like a black and gray kaleidoscope. As the band hurdles to the finish, Baldy repeatedly yells, I thought I would be more than this, in a high-voltage scree as a painful paradox after such an ambitious display of I remember reading that and being like, I have to listen to this fucking record right now. And when I was like the first eight months of the year, when I was cooking, I was biking like four miles each way from my apartment to my restaurant. And I was increasingly as the year going on was going on being like, this is just not where I want to be in my life. I know I need to get out of this, but I was working this very intense job. And this record was like a soundtrack to all those bike rides and uh really just kind of was there for me in a really powerful way as i was trying to figure out what my next step is in life what am i going to do after like if i leave this if i stick around here like well what where am i going what am i doing i was about to get married and uh this record just has always had a very uh powerful powerful grip on me every time i listen to it it's just like a total adrenaline release and also like very very therapeutic that's a great record I think it's his best record, although the ones he has put out since are all very, very good under the Cloud Nothings moniker. That album reminds me a whole lot of the um, Portland, Oregon, early 80s noise merchant Wipers, being the brainchild of Greg Sage, who may be in the witness protection plan now, if anybody knows. But yeah, especially Wasted Days has a lot in common with uh, the song Youth of America, which is the nine-minute wiper song of the album the same name and yeah actually i might have gotten to wipers from listening to cloud nud things and hearing all the comparisons and then going backwards and thinking oh okay this is certainly where this came from being a incredibly exciting breakneck rock and roll with vocals shouting from the void so I think that album was probably my top 15. Probably should have broken into my top 10. But then there wouldn't be as much room for my number four being Spiritualized. Sweetheart, Sweet Light. Now, before Spiritualized put out uh, their most recent album in 2018 being In Nothing Hurt, I thought that Sweetheart, Sweet Light was the best Spiritualized album since Ladies and Gentlemen Were Floating in Space. And it's... Uh, it's a very good record. It's got <clears throat> all of the whoosh type of things that you expect from the majestic space rock of Spiritualize. Has some of their best grooves. I mean, Jason Pierce was just, he was in a good place when he was making this album, despite the fact that I think they said it was preceded by he had chemotherapy, but it wasn't for cancer. It was for something else. It was the album... Before that album, Songs in A&E, where I think he had to beat double pneumonia and he had to beat some other weird liver disease to make this album. Because, you know, as we say with Jason Pierce, you can't make a record unless he almost dies when he's making it. <laughs> yeah, this, uh, well, this record's going to show up on my list, so I'm going to keep my mouth shut, but it's an amazing album. Um, my number four is Flying Lotus Until the Quiet Comes. And this was a record that um, in similar ways to 
the Swan's record. Not similar sounding at all. But in similar ways, this kind of aligned with where a lot of my musical interests were peaking in 2012. Um, I'd gotten very much into uh, kind of weird noise-based ambient jamming and ambient soundscapes. And um, this record just kind of tapped into all of that and really kind of showcased for me this like frenetic vibe that I was loving in music, but also it's very technological digital type of spaciousness and um this is still my favorite flying lotus record i know that some people will ride for cosmogramma i know that uh, you're dead ends you're up dead my, that ends up in my 2014 list but uh until the quiet comes is still the record that um i i, I, I want to throw on if i'm listening to flying lotus it was one of as I was building a record collection, it was one of those first records that like had to have, um, and I still listen to it on vinyl on a regular basis. It just sounds really good. It's got really great energy. It's really well produced. The songs on it are super fascinating, and it's led me to find uh, Basis Thundercat, where I was looking back through our um, uh, our old episodes recently, as we're coming up on two years as of recording time since we started this whole thing first album i ever featured in album new album releases was a thundercat album <laughs> which uh seems funny now that's not really where my musical head's at but um this is definitely like this drew the line to that and this was just a fascinating i went through la at one point during our trip and i remember listening to this driving through la and it just fit perfectly and um always have that memory of it Flying Lotus is always going to be one of those artists to me that i can appreciate as being extremely talented I don't really like all that much. I know it's not him, it's me. I just don't have the Philo gene. <laughs> I can't explain it. Maybe I gotta try harder. I've tried pretty hard. So, are we in our top three at this point? Top three, yeah. Top three, all right. Number three, album I have not listened to in a while. I really should change that. But the two that he put it after it were so goddamn good. Kendrick Lamar, Good Kid, Mad City. This was kind of, I know he had an album or two before this, but this was the album where Kendrick Lamar became Kendrick motherfucking Lamar. Yeah. This really, this was kind of the first big splash. You know, this is songs like Swimming Pools, Money Trees. I mean, I just remember from putting on... The first song, it's like very cinematic, what it talks about. He's like at home watching television. He gets a call from a girl. He heads out. And he thinks he's going to get jumped like it's a setup. So he doesn't like proceed with it. I mean, there's a song on this record where I guess he talks about like a first person perspective of him and some friends want to commit a robbery. They made a left, they made a right. I really could stand to go back and listen to it. But it was one of the few albums that both me and my wife could agree on in the car back in 2012. And we listened to it quite a bit. Money Trees especially. That's probably, I don't think it was a single. But that might be my favorite song on the album. Just kind of wistful, melancholy ode with both nostalgia and the dream of being shaded underneath a money tree. But as you know, by this point, I mean, Kendrick went on to bigger and better things. I mean, God, after this record, what, to Pimp a Butterfly yeah. and Damn, both of which are arguably better than Good Kid Mad City, which 
plus one most... released on Untitled. Is that what it was called? The one that came out in 2016. Oh yes, that's right. That was really really good for like. I just forgot like, about uh, that. Yeah, for just um, eight unreleased tracks that came out, uh, unreleased unmastered. I think what it was called. That was yes, that's record. right. Exactly. Right. He's on a hell of a run. I mean, with those four records, that's like a run like Stevie Wonder in the seventies. Like, yeah. Music of my mind, talking book, inner visions, fulfilling this is first finale. I mean, just the amount of flawlessness in those albums. I'm very excited to see where he goes next. I don't see him ending up like Kanye for some reason. No, I think he's a bit more heady than Kanye and yes. a bit more focused on kind of what's important, at least to this point in time. Um, yeah, this the only reason this didn't make my top 10 is um, kind of the theme of 2012. I kind of missed this until after the fact. I remember this was number one on the Pitchfork album chart uh, that year. Uh, I think they had Frank Ocean number two and Kendrick Lamar number one, which is kind mm. of a big statement in terms of the, the direction Pitchfork was about to go to go through in uh, the 2000s or 2010s. Um, I love this record in hindsight. Uh, part of the rule that we set down when we made these lists was that we were going to be true to where we were as listeners at the time. So I couldn't fib. Uh, I love this record all the same. And um, his next two definitely end up in my top 10. What you got for three? Uh, so number three for me is your number four, Spiritualized, Sweetheart, Sweet Light. Um, I remember being told by friend of the pod, even though he's never been on the pod, he's a total friend of the pod, uh, Brian Weaver, that I had to listen to this record. And um, I had not ever listened to any Spiritualized at that point in time. And I threw it on and intro huh starts up and i was kind of transfixed and wondering where this was going and what was happening and what kind of band this was wait a sec weaver was the one who told you weaver was the one who told you to listen to this album weaver told me to listen to this album yes. really yeah oh, okay and then the not nearly nine minute long kind of perfect spiritualized song in the sense that it's really uplifting it's really melodic it sounds like Happy Road era Beatles it sounds like just the happiest and most emotional and saddest and heaviest but like most brilliantly produced music you've ever heard uh, hey, hey Jane comes on and I was just fucking sold and I remember listening to this record all the time throughout that year and it was a great car record it's a great driving album and um, yeah, much like you, I, um, I I worked backwards from here, and it was from here that I discovered, ladies and gentlemen, we are floating in space, which um, amazing, amazing record. And uh, I think we both had at least I know in my top twenty, I had um, and nothing hurt from 2018. Um, but yeah, really, really just incredible music. Um, I definitely went through an addiction period with Spiritualize in the fall of 2018. It's a funny way to describe listening to Spiritualize. Yeah, well, it is. is. I mean, I I couldn't (laughs) stop. It's very true. You're absolutely right. It's like uh, every song. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And uh, we'll see. Time will tell. There's a Spiritualize show here in Denver in early April as this came out. Uh, I've either seen the, the show or I have not. I'm, I'm, I'm heavily leaning towards going, but um, it's a Saturday night and I've given up a lot of Saturday nights over the last couple of weeks. But um, 
as I talk about this record, as you talk about this record, I talk myself more and more into going to the show. Yeah, same thing here. It's coming up soon, but it's pretty expensive. And I don't know. It might have to be a sacrifice. We will see. On that, um, I was going to say, on that record, his daughter, Poppy, who I think was 11 years old at the time, gets a co-write credit. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I think the last song, So Long, You Pretty Things, she wrote some of the lyrics, and she might have written some of the lyrics to head into the top. Remember, there was a funny interview circulating around the time the album came out where it was in the studio and Jason Pierce was, I guess, being interviewed at, at the BBC and the woman doing the interview asked him, like, you know, your daughter gets a co-write credit and he's, like, wearing sunglasses indoors because that's what he does. And he, I just remember him saying, like, it's so beautiful because she's a child. I can see the world through her eyes as a child. All right, dude. <laughs> anyway, through that digression, my number two, which was also uh, a band in my top ten back in 2010, Hot Chip, In Our Heads. My favorite Hot Chip album. I think it's the best Hot Chip album. It's got the best production. It's got the best songs. They are somewhat longer songs. They are. It's almost like a concept album about... Love and Marriage, as some of the better Hot Chip albums tend to be. But no, for my money, that one has the best beats. It's got my two favorite Hot Chip songs in Let Me Be Him and How Do You Do, as well as um, the first song, Motion Sickness, is another one of my favorite songs. I just think it's the one record where they completely put it all together. And the album that they put out, I want to say, in 2016 called Why Make Sense, I thought was a huge step backwards and was almost terrible. I think they have new material coming out in 2019, so I kind of want to see uh, if they can do a bit of a rebound. But I'll always have In Our Heads, which I think is phenomenal. So my number two is... um a record I still listen to on a regular basis and I think it's the best work from this band um, by far yeah um, I did like the album that came out afterwards but um, this definitely holds up better and that is Tame Impala's Lonerism um, I think it's one of the best albums of the decade it's a really phenomenal guitar record um, I remember hearing Inner Speaker for the first time in the fall of 2010 and definitely being into it feeling like it was a touch one note and lonerism came out and it was uh kevin parker saw you know the entire picture at this point in time and was able to communicate it in full um there was definitely a a, a massive step forward from inner speaker to lonerism and Lonerism has some of my favorite songs of the decade, has some of my favorite guitar work in the decade. Just really phenomenal songwriting, really just unique perspective on the world. Um, songs like Feel Like We Only Go Backwards just nail their overall subject matter, get stuck in your head. They're just filled with earworms, and um, it's really, really well produced. And it's a record that if I throw it on and Be Above It starts and that kind of hypnotic marathon-esque chant of gotta be above it gotta be above it gotta be above it, gotta be above it. 
once I get into that, I'm just, I'm done. I'm there. It's one of those records that I'm, I'm listening to all the way through. And as we record this, I'm thinking to myself, I don't know the last time I heard this record and I need to do something about it. So it will probably be my first record I put on uh, when I get into the office here tomorrow. It's uh, just really, really great, really satisfying. And um, definitely one of the better, you know, updates on rock music that we've heard throughout the 2010s. Let's do a cute little segue. My number one album is Tame Impala, Lonerism. I guess I liked it a lot too. This is the album with Mind Mischief on it, which is covered by the Mike Gordon band, Badly. Um, Yeah, all the stuff that you said, this album, I think it's the best Tame Impala record. It's definitely, it's an improvement on Inner Speaker. Certainly the one that came after it, Currents, was kind of a move towards more of like an 80s soft rock, Phil Collins-y direction, which, while certainly a good record, I like Lonerism more. Yeah, when I think of Tame Impala, I think of Mind Mischief, I think it feels like we only go backwards, gotta be above it. Um, but I need to go back and listen to this album because it's been a while. I just remember that back in 2012, this was a staple of uh, Fish's pre-show music. This yes. was certainly during set break and uh, between the show of at least two or three Fish shows I saw. It almost seemed like it, you know, Trey was into the album. There were some times that he was using um, like effects like Phaser and Flanger and stuff and things that like Kevin Parker was using. And I think we mentioned, um, God, didn't we talk about at one point we think it'd be cool if this guy decided to like produce a fish album at some point? Yes. I think, um, if the band's trying to do something forward thinking recording wise, I think we both mentioned that this would be a really, really great fit for them. Only thing about Tame Impala is I think after, Currents came out, I saw them live for the first time at Radio City Music Hall and I thought that the live show was almost like you would go to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and look at like Psych Rock and then the Tame Powell live show would come up, like it was almost almost a little too studied, almost like an on the nose parody of Psych Rock, I would have liked a little more spontaneity in the live show Maybe that's being nitpicky. I'm not sure. But I know, I think he has, suppose he's got one coming out in 2019 because what Currents was, what, four years ago? It's really funny you say that because I just happened to pull up Instagram. This is from the future going to the past, but the past talking to the future. Uh, First post on Instagram is Tame Impala, new track, one hour, speakers, headphones, ready people. Um, of note, Kevin O'Connor of the ringer.com says, yes. <laughs> oh, wait, that's the thing. Yes. Right now. And, uh, huh. it's like going to happen. So, um, if you're listening to this, this, uh, I think this bonus episode drops in mid May. Um, we all probably know whether or not we love the Tame Impala, new Tame Impala songs or not. Um, but in this moment where we're recording, there's quite a bit of anticipation. Um, Mid-May, this is coming out? So, wow, when people hear this, I've already had a second kid. Oh, boy. You are you are a new dad all over again as of um, uh, publishing. I hope that worked <laughs> out. 
I hope I hope it's good. I also hope, you know, and this is on the same level of importance that mid May our baseball teams are both doing well. But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't even seem to be competitive. All right. Exactly. So um, wrapping things up here, my number one is uh, the last record that we've heard thus far from one of my favorite bands in the last 20 years. And that is the Walkman Heaven. Um, I just love this fucking record. It sounds like friendship. It sounds like a bunch of guys who have been hanging out super close, super tight with each other, who know each other very well, who have now just got married, had kids, and they're still trying to make things work however possible. Um, all hanging out, you know, on like a Saturday night at their favorite bar, shooting the shit, telling stories, a little bit of sadness because they know that those times are gone, but also a lot of joy a lot of gratitude for what they have in their lives. It just really reminds me of where I'm at in my life right now. And, um, you know, I listen to a record like this. It's not a very complex record. It's very organic. It's very acoustic in a lot of ways. Um, there's not a ton of experimentation on here. It's just sounds like a bunch of guys in a room writing songs. And um, sometimes you just need that. And uh, I think for you know, the larger goals of this podcast, the community that we have surrounding it. This is kind of one of those records that when I throw it on, it just like makes me really happy to love the music that I love and to know the people that I know to have the life that I have. And I just, I absolutely love it. I didn't love this album as much in 2012. I like it more now. I think like you said, it's one of the lesser Walkman albums in terms of complexity. Right. It's more of kind of like a taking stock of where they are, their dads. It's laid back. It doesn't rock quite as much. And I think... Is there Sky Blue Sky? Yeah, exactly. It's like a Sky Blue Sky album. I think actually now, having grown up a bit more and having had a child, and I think being a little closer in age now to where the Walkman were when they finished that right. record, um, I have a better appreciation for it, especially the title track. And the song Line by Line and um, was it Nightingale? Is that on there? Nightingale's is beautiful. It's a great song. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's it's one of those, I I, I I bought this on vinyl. It sounds really warm. It sounds, you know, just great when you turn it up. It's the kind of record that, like, it's great for car rides. And uh, similar to you, it's, I loved it at the time and it really resonated with where I was feeling as a uh, newly married man. Um, and over the last seven years, it's only grown with me as my life has changed in a lot of different ways and uh, grown more complicated. And these, the feelings that they talk about, the what, what they kind of go through in this record is just always kind of um, uh, has always resonated with me. So definitely one of my favorites of the whole decade and my number one record of, uh, of 2012. I would not be surprised if that band got back together at some point. It seems like they're out of all the bands of that era they all still like each other they all still kind of play music I could definitely see them doing like Coachella then Pitchfork oh, yeah. Reunion and do like a 10 year anniversary tour of this record and play a bunch of the big hits yeah do it kind of in a way that they can figure out how not to uh, make it corny or, or too much of a cash in because uh, well, that was the last album was 20 that was 2012 so 
Yeah, they come Hamilton on. Lethauser's been super busy since then. He made that great record in 2016 with Rostam. Right. Um, and I think he had a solo record that came out prior to that. And, um, you know, but I would love to hear the band together again. I, would, I, I still remember when they broke up. I remember reading the... It's about a year after this album came out. Uh, I remember reading the tweet when I was in Korea. And just getting really sad because I, I think they had something left in them. I just wonder if life got the most of them in terms of familial complexities combined with tour was a little bit hard. Yeah, absolutely. Anyhow, we hope that you have enjoyed listening to this bonus episode of our top 10 albums of 2012, exactly where our heads were in listening in 2012. So, come back in the not too distant future where we're going to get to 2013 will be next thank you for listening and come back a little bit we'll join hands we're going to fight fish myopia and we're going to go beyond the pond Osiris.